Do you have kids in your life? Whether you're a parent, teacher, aunt, uncle, grandparent, babysitter, we all know that keeping kids calm and entertained can be difficult. That's why I want to introduce to you the newest show by Slumber Studios. It's called Snuggle, and it features calming stories for kids of all ages. Whether it's for bedtime, nap time, or just for fun, Snuggle offers a cozy world of imagination and adventure. You'll find original stories where we swim with mermaids, visit old toy stores, and try out magical wands. And you'll hear our modernized renditions of classic tales like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. Just search Snuggle in your podcast player and be sure to follow the show so that it's easy to find next time the kids want a good story to snuggle up with. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Chapter 10 Continued In the last chapters, our adventurers were taken on board the mysterious submarine and met its enigmatical captain. In this chapter, Professor Aranax is shown the great library of the submarine vessel. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. These words of the commander had a great effect upon me. I cannot deny it. My weak point was touched, and I forgot for a moment that the contemplation of these sublime subjects was not worth the loss of liberty. Besides, I trusted to the future to decide this grave question. So I contented myself with saying, By what name ought I address you? Sir, replied the commander, I am nothing to you but Captain Nemo, and you and your companions are nothing to me but the passengers of Sinautilus. Captain Nemo called. A steward appeared, 
The captain gave him his orders in that strange language which I did not understand. Then, turning towards the Canadian and concierge, A repast awaits you in your cabin, said he. Be so good as to follow this man. And now, Mr. Aronax, our breakfast is ready. Permit me to lead the way. I'm at your service, Captain. I followed Captain Nemo, and as soon as I had passed through the door, I found myself in a kind of passage lighted by electricity, similar to the waist of a ship. After we had proceeded a dozen yards, a second door opened before me. I then entered a dining room, decorated and furnished in severe taste. High oaken sideboards, inlaid with ebony, stood at the two extremities of the room, and upon their shelves glittered china, porcelain, and glass of inestimable value. The plate on the table sparkled in the rays which the luminous ceiling shed around, while the light was tempered and softened by exquisite paintings. In the center of the room was a table richly laid out. Captain Nemo indicated the place I was to occupy. The breakfast consisted of a certain number of dishes, the contents of which were furnished by the sea alone, and I was ignorant of the nature and mode of preparation of some of them. I acknowledged that they were good, but they had a peculiar flavor which I easily became accustomed to. These different ailments appeared to me to be rich in phosphorus, and I thought they must have a marine origin. Captain Nemo looked at me. I asked him no questions, but he guessed my thoughts, and answered of his own accord the questions which I was burning to address to him. The greater part of these dishes are unknown to you, he said to me. However, you may partake of them without fear. They are wholesome and nourishing. For a long time I have renounced the food of the earth, and I am never ill now. My crew, who are healthy, are fed on the same food. So, said I, all these eatables are the produce of the sea. Yes, Professor, the sea supplies all my wants. Sometimes I cast my nets in tow, and I draw them in ready to break. 
Sometimes I hunt in the midst of the element, which appears to be inaccessible to man, and quarry the game which dwells in my submarine forests. My flocks, like those of Neptune's old shepherds, graze fearlessly in the immense prairies of the ocean. I have a vast property there, which I cultivate myself, and which is always sown by the hand of the creator of all things. I can understand perfectly, sir, that your nets furnish excellent fish for your table. I can understand also that you hunt aquatic game in your submarine forest. But I cannot understand at all how a particle of meat, no matter how small, can figure in your bill of fare. This, which you believe to be meat, Professor, is nothing else than a fillet of turtle. Here are also some dolphins' livers, which you will take to be ragu of pork. My cook is a clever fellow who excels in dressing these various products of the ocean. Taste all these dishes. Here is a preserve of holothuria, which a Malay would declare to be unrivaled in the world. Here is a cream, of which the milk has been furnished by the cetacean, and the sugar by the great fuckus of the North Sea. And lastly, permit me to offer you some preserve of anemones, which is equal to that of most delicious fruits. I tasted more for curiosity than as a connoisseur, whilst Captain Nemo enchanted me with his extraordinary stories. You like the sea, Captain? Yes, I love it. The sea is everything. It covers seven-tenths of the terrestrial globe. Its breath is pure and healthy. It is an immense desert, where man is never lonely, for he feels life stirring on all sides. The sea is only the embodiment of a supernatural and wonderful existence. It is nothing but love and emotion. It is the living infinite, as one of your poets has said. In fact, Professor, nature manifests herself in it by her three kingdoms, mineral, vegetable, and animal. The sea is the vast reservoir of nature. The globe began with sea, so to speak, and who knows if it will not end with it. In it is supreme tranquility. The sea does not belong to depots. Upon its surface, men can still exercise unjust laws, 
fight, tear one another to pieces, and be carried away with terrestrial horrors. But at thirty feet below its level, their rain ceases, their influence is quenched, and their power disappears. Ah, sir, live, live in the bosom of the waters. There only is independence. There I recognize no masters. There I am free. Captain Nemo suddenly became silent in the midst of this enthusiasm, by which he was quite carried away. For a few moments, he paced up and down, much agitated. Then he became more calm, regained his accustomed coldness of expression, and turning towards me. Now, Professor, said he, if you wish to go over the Nautilus, I am at your service. Captain Nemo rose. I followed him. A double door, contrived at the back of the dining room, opened, and I entered a room equal in dimensions to that which I just quitted. It was a library, high pieces of furniture, of black violet ebony inlaid with brass, supported upon their wide shelves a great number of books, uniformly bound. They followed the shape of the room, terminating at the lower part in huge divans, covered with brown leather which were curved to afford the greatest comfort. Light, movable desks, made to slide in and out at will, allowed one to rest one's book while reading. In the center stood an immense table, covered with pamphlets, amongst which were some newspapers already old of date. The electric light flooded everything. It was shed from four unpolished globes, half sunk in the volumes of the ceiling. I looked with real admiration at this room, so ingeniously fitted up, and I could scarcely believe my eyes. Captain Nemo, said I to my host, who had just thrown himself on one of the divans. This is a library which would do honor to more than one of the continental palaces, and I am absolutely astounded when I consider that it follows you to the bottom of the sea. Where could one find great solitude or silence, Professor? replied Captain Nemo. Did your study in the museum afford you such perfect quiet? No, sir, and I must confess 
that it is a very poor one after yours. You must have six or seven thousand volumes here. Twelve thousand, Monsieur Aronnax. These are the only ties which bind me to the earth. But I had one done with the world on the day when my Nautilus plunged for the first time beneath the waters. That day I bought my vast volumes, my last pamphlets, my last papers, and from that time I wish to think that man no longer think or write. These books, Professor, are at your service besides, and you can make use of them freely. I thanked Captain Nemo and went up to the shelves of the library. Works on science, morals, and literature abounded in every language, but I did not see one single work on political economy. That subject appeared to be strictly prescribed. Strange to say, all these books were irregularly arranged in whatever language they were written, and this medley proved that the captain of the Nautilus must have read indiscriminately the books which he took up by chance. Sir, said I to the captain, I thank you for having placed this library at my disposal. It contains treasures of science, and I shall profit by them. This room is not only a library, said Captain Nemo. It is also a smoking room. A smoking room, I cried. Then one may smoke on board. Certainly. Then, sir... I am forced to believe that you have kept up a communication with Havana. Not any, answered the captain. Except this cigar, Monsieur Arnax, and though it does not come from Havana, you will be pleased with it if you are a connoisseur. I took the cigar which was afforded me. Its shape recalled the London ones, but it seemed to be made of leaves of gold. I lighted it at a little brazier, which was supported upon an elegant bronze stem, and drew the first whiffs with delight of a lover of smoking who has not smoked for two days. It is excellent, but it is not tobacco. No, answered the captain. This tobacco comes neither from Havana nor from the east. It is a kind of seaweed, rich in nicotine, with which the sea provides me, but somewhat sparingly. At this moment... Captain Nemo opened a door which stood opposite to that by which I had entered the library. 
and I passed into an immense drawing room, splendidly lighted. It was a vast, four-sided room, thirty feet long, eighteen feet wide, and fifteen high. A luminous ceiling, decorated with light arabesques, shed a soft, clear light over all the marvels accumulated in this museum. For it was, in fact, a museum, in which an intelligent and prodigal hand had gathered all the treasures of nature and art, with the artistic confusion which distinguishes a painter's studio. Thirty first-rate pictures, uniformly framed, spared by bright drapery, ornamented the walls, which were hung with tapestry of severe design. I saw works of great value, the greater part of which I had admired in the special collections of Europe and in the exhibitions of paintings. The several schools of the old masters were represented by a Madonna of Raphael, a version of Leonardo da Vinci, a nymph of Correggio, a woman of Titan, an adoration of Veronese, an assumption of Murillo, a portrait of Holmien, a monk of Valesques, a martyr of Ribera, a fair of Rubens, two Flemish landscapes of Teniers, three little genre pictures of Gerard Dow, Mensu, and Paul Potter, two specimens of Gericlot and Prudhon, and some specimens of Bacliusen and Venet. Amongst the works of the modern painters were pictures with signatures of Delacroix, Ingres, De Camps, Troyon, Messionnaire, Debony, etc., and some admirable statues in marble and bronze, after the finest antique models, stood upon pedestals in the corners of this magnificent museum. Amazement, as the captain of the Nautilus had predicted, had already begun to take passion of me. Professor, said the strange man. You must excuse the unceremonious way in which I have received you, and the disorder of this room. Sir, I answered, without seeking to know who you are, I recognize in you an artist. An amateur, nothing more, sir. Formerly, I loved to collect these beautiful works, created by the hand of man. I sought them greedily, 
and ferreted them out indefatigably, and I have been able to bring together some objects of great value. These are my last souvenirs of that world which is dead to me. In my eyes, your modern artists are already old. They have two or three thousand years of existence. I confound them in my own mind. Masters have no age. And these musicians, said I, pointing out some works of Weber, Rossini, Mozart, Beethoven, Hayden, Meerbeer, Herald, Wagner, Orber, Gunnard, and a number of others scattered over a large model piano organ which occupied one of the panels in the drawing room. These musicians, replied the captain, are the contemporaries of Orpheus, for in the memory of the dead all chronological differences are effaced, and I am dead, Professor, as much dead as those of your friends who are sleeping six feet under the earth. Captain Nemo was silent and seemed lost in profound reverie. I contemplated him with deep interest, analyzing in silence the strange expression of his countenance. Leaning on his elbow against an angle of a costly mosaic table, he no longer saw me. He had forgotten my presence. I did not disturb his reverie, and continued my observation of the curiosities which enriched the room. Under elegant glass cases, fixed by copper rivets, were classed and labelled the most precious products of the sea which had ever been presented to the eye of a naturalist. My delight as a professor may be conceived. A somewhat nervous conchiliologist would certainly have fainted before other more numerous cases in which were classified the specimens of mollusks. It was a collection of inestimable value, which time fails me to describe minutely. Amongst these specimens, I will quote from memory only the elegant royal hammerfish of the Indian Ocean, whose regular white spots stood out brightly on a red and brown ground, an imperial spondule, bright-coloured, bristling with spines, a rare specimen in the European museums. I estimated its value at no less than a thousand pounds. A common hammerfish of the seas of New Holland, which is only procured with difficulty, exotic barracuda of Sengal, fragile white bivalve shells, 
which a breath might shatter like a soap bubble. Several varieties of Aspergillium of Java, a kind of calcareous tube edged with leafy folds and much debated by amateurs. A whole series of trochae, some of greenish-yellow, found in the American seas. Others, reddish-brown, natives of Australian waters. Others from the Gulf of Mexico, remarkable for their imbricated shells. Stellari found in the southern seas, and last, the rarest of all, the magnificent spur of New Zealand, and every description of delicate and fragile shells to which science has given appropriate names. Apart, in separate compartments, were spread out chaplets of pearls of the greatest beauty, which reflected the electric light in the little sparks of fire. Pink pearls, torn from the Pina Marina of the Red Sea. Green pearls of the Haliotide Iris. Yellow, blue and black pearls the curious productions of the divers' mollusks of every ocean, and certain mussels of the watercourses of the north. Lastly, several specimens of inestimable value, which had been gathered from the rarest pintadines. Some of these pearls were larger than a pigeon's egg, and were worth as much, and more than that which the traveller Tavernier sold to the Shah of Persia for three millions, and surpassed the one in the possession of the Imam of Muscat, which I had believed to be unrivaled in the world. Therefore, to estimate the value of this collection was simply impossible. Captain Nemo must have expended millions in inquirement of these various specimens, and I was thinking what source he could have drawn from to have been able to thus gratify his fancy for collecting, when I was interrupted by these words. You are examining my shells, Professor. Unquestionably, they must be interesting to a naturalist, but for me they have a far greater charm, for I have collected them all with my own hand, and there is not a sea on the face of the globe which has escaped my researches. I can understand, Captain, the delight of wandering about in the midst of such riches. You are one of those who have collected their treasures themselves. No museum in Europe possesses such a collection of the produce of the ocean. But if I exhaust all my admiration upon it, I shall have none left for the vessel which carries it. 
I do not wish to pry into your secrets, but I must confess that this Nautilus, with the motive power which is combined in it, the contrivances which enable it to be worked, the powerful agent which propels it, all excite my curiosity to the highest pitch. I see suspended on the walls of this room instruments of whose use I am ignorant. You will find these same instruments in my own room, Professor, where I shall have much pleasure in explaining their use to you. But first, come and inspect the cabin which has been set apart for your own use. You must see how you will be accommodated on board the Nautilus. I followed Captain Nemo, who, by one of the doors opening from each panel of the drawing room, regained the waist. He conducted me towards the bow, and there I found not a cabin, but an elegant room with a bed dressing table, and several other pieces of furniture. I could only thank my host. Your room rejoins mine, said he, opening a door, and mine opens into the drawing room that we have just quitted. I entered the captain's room. It had a severe almost monkish aspect. A small iron bedstead, a table, some articles for the toilet, the hole lighted by a skylight. No comforts, the strictest necessaries only. Captain Nemo pointed to a seat. Be so good as to sit down, he said. I seated myself, and he began thus. 